Welcome to the Osprey Podcast. In today's episode, we're diving into the encyclopedic knowledge of Dr. Greg Potter, the founder of Resilient Nutrition, to educate ourselves on both nutrition and also sleep. A quick tip for this one, you might want to take some notes. I'm your host, Marcus Brown, and this is the Osprey Podcast. So let's start with the kind of very basics. Why does sleep matter? It matters for all sorts of reasons. And let's just consider some of them by going through different parts of our biology. So beginning with the brain, we all intuitively know that if we don't sleep well, then we don't work very well. And there are many aspects of brain function that are negatively affected by poor sleep. So for example, your ability to attend to something tends to be compromised. And this probably explains why people are at higher risk of traffic accidents. If they haven't slept well, they experience these attentional lapses in which they temporarily fall into sleep. Memory is also compromised, our ability to learn new information, and then our mood, of course, tends to be worse. And with respect to long-term brain health, it's very clear that poor sleep predisposes people to certain brain problems. And as an example of this, like the lymphatic system, which some people might have heard of, which is so important to immune function, the brain has its own immune system. And during the deep stage of sleep, the plumbing in this system opens up and a type of fluid washes toxic debris that's accumulated during wakefulness out of the spaces between cells. And that's important ultimately to risk of diseases such as Alzheimer's. With respect to other aspects of health, it's clear that people who don't get as much sleep are predisposed to developing diseases such as obesity in years to come. And we know a fair bit about the reasons why that's the case. So controlled experiments have shown that hunger goes up when people are short on sleep. On average, people consume roughly 250 calories more each day, which is about equivalent to a Snickers bar. And at the same time, it doesn't seem that we burn more calories if we haven't had enough sleep. And so the result is a positive energy balance and over time weight gain. But then there are other aspects of metabolism that are negatively affected. For instance, insulin sensitivity, you don't need to worry about the details of what that is, but it's important to diabetes, is detrimentally affected. And hence, people who don't get as much sleep as they need are more likely to go on to develop diabetes and associated complications later. And the list goes on. If we talk about other aspects of cardiovascular health, for example, then when people don't get enough sleep, their resting heart rate tends to go up. If someone is wearing a smart watch or a smart ring, then they have probably seen that in their data before. If you don't get enough sleep, then your immune function is also worse. And this is very relevant in the context of, say, vaccination. And in ways that are similar to how deeper stage of sleep is important to forming memories of things, deep sleep is also very important to memory in the immune system. And because of that, if you get plenty of deep sleep around the time of vaccination, then your body's going to produce more antibodies. And in the era of the COVID-19 pandemic, that of course is at the fore of many of our minds. And then also there are things like reproductive health. So for example, people who either 
don't get much sleep or get an awful lot of sleep tend to be less reproductively successful, less fertile. And then finally, if we think about athletes, then obviously sleep is important to their general health. And if they're not healthy, then they won't be able to train as hard and recover from their sessions as well. Their body composition won't be as good. And that's very important in certain sports. I think, say, gymnastics or sprinting. But also it seems that people who don't get as much sleep are more likely to develop musculoskeletal injuries in the weeks that follow insufficient sleep. And then there's the performance side of things. So take, say, a team sport such as basketball or football or rugby. Decision-making is important and that is negatively affected by poor sleep. And then there's coordination. There have been studies in which people have deprived tennis players of sleep and the next day they've shown that their serving accuracy is worse. And then there are other aspects of performance in sports, such as endurance. And if you look, say, at triathletes, then after sleep loss, they'll perform worse in time trials. If you look at intermittent sports like rugby or football, then their sprint speed over time tends to drop off more if they're short on sleep. And I don't want all of this to sound like I'm fear-mongering or anything like that, because the good news is that if you start sleeping better, then pretty much everything that I've just described can be reversed. And if you take people who, say, habitually don't get enough sleep and you give them more time in bed, they sleep longer and they experience a range of beneficial effects on their metabolic health. They are better at controlling their appetites. They tend to eat slightly better, in particular, they tend to eat less sugar. Their attention and decision-making tends to improve. And then certain aspects of athletic performance have also been shown to get better too. So endurance, strength and power, and also things like accuracy in, in certain sports, including basketball. Okay, so there was a lot there. I think what I liked particularly actually was at the end that obviously it's there's a long list of negative effects from not getting yeah. sleep, but there's also a long list of what I might call upgrades if you improve your sleep, correct? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So with that in mind then, what defines healthy sleep? Is it a is there a quality versus quantity balance to be found here? There is. And I think when people consider sleep health, the thing that most people think about is how long they're sleeping. And there are actually different dimensions to healthy sleep. So one of these is sleep duration, but another is sleep quality. And that really can be broken down into different variables. So one would be how long it takes you to fall asleep. One would be how much of the time you're in bed, you're actually asleep, which is referred to as sleep efficiency. One would be the, the different stages of sleep that you pass through. So people will have heard of rapid eye movement sleep and deep sleep and so on. And then there are some other things too, such as whether you move your body during sleep. And this is particularly relevant in the context of things like sleep disorders. And then another dimension is the timing of sleep. And if you try and sleep at a time of day at which your body's clock isn't promoting sleep, and this is often true of shift workers, 
then your sleep quality will tend to suffer and your sleep duration will tend to suffer too. So if you look at night shift workers, for instance, then on average they get something like one hour less sleep than their non-night shift working counterparts. So with that said, when we think about those different aspects of sleep, we can then start to map out what healthy sleep looks like. And it's really characterized by a few things. So first, beginning with the daytime, you should feel alert and mentally sharp during the day. You should have lots of energy and you shouldn't have any big dips in that energy. In the evening, you should probably feel sleepy at roughly the same time from day to day. And ideally, you should fall asleep quite quickly. Typically, that's within 30 minutes or so. You'd then wake minimally at night and you'd wake naturally at roughly the same time each morning and, and feeling refreshed too, feeling like your sleep was restorative. You mentioned shift workers there. I suppose they're perhaps one of the more complicated cases because they're not going to necessarily... I mean, how, how do you find that pattern where you're waking naturally if you're forcing yourself to stay up all night long? Do you see what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Are there, are there any like steps that they can take to make that easier? Yeah, there are lots of steps. And I, I want to be clear that what I just described might be ideal on paper, but it's not always feasible in the context of our modern lifestyles. And mm-hmm. obviously this is true of shift workers. So with that said, the tricky thing with shift work, of course, is that people's work schedules and so on are very variable. And so I can't really give a one size fits all answer, but with that said, I'll give some, some generic tips that I think might be helpful. So first I would say that if you're short on sleep, then you probably want to catch up on sleep when possible. It's an obvious thing to say, but it's, it's particularly important for shift workers. And if you can nap at work, then say you're doing night shift, naps of 20 minutes or so can be very beneficial for a range of different outcomes, everything from your ability to concentrate at work to temporarily boosting your immune system and supporting your cardiovascular health too. I think otherwise, in terms of sleep, one of the tricky things with night shift work especially is that people are often trying to sleep when the sun is coming up and it's getting warm and it's getting noisier. So there's a particular onus on trying to keep your bedroom at home cool and dark. So making sure you've got blackout blinds and or an eye mask can be especially handy. And I think also if you don't have air conditioning, which obviously isn't particularly environmentally friendly, then having a fan is important. And also having a mattress and having pillows that are effective at dissipating heat is especially key. And with respect to the mattress, Mm. spring mattresses tend to be better at dissipating heat than foam mattresses because nowadays there's been a surge in popularity of bed-in-the-box mattresses. And to be foldable, these mattresses are made of foam. The issue is that foam tends to store heat much more effectively than spring. So a change to the mattress can often be quite transformative in, in terms of sleep health. And then moving on from sleep itself, I think physical activity and your patterns of light exposure can be really meaningful. And 
if you're physically active during your shifts, then that can help you adjust your new work schedules. It doesn't mean doing anything hugely strenuous necessarily, but it might just mean periodically getting up from your chair and doing some simple body weight exercises or having a brief, brisk walk. And then also when you're exposed to light can substantially shift the timing of your body's clock. And for that reason, I I can't really be particularly prescriptive when it comes to light exposure timing. But what I'll just say is that as people will understand, I'm sure, if you're exposed to lots of high intensity light, the kind of light you get outdoors during daylight, then it can quite potently increase your alertness. And it also has a range of other beneficial effects on everything from mood, which is why people struggle with seasonal affective disorder during the short days of winter, to your ability to learn new information and and possibly even metabolic health too. And so what that means is that if you're at work in a shift and you're feeling sleepy, then exposing yourself to, to strong overhead lighting can really have quite a strong short-term boost on how alert you feel in in a way that's sometimes comparable to say taking caffeine and on that subject of course nutrition is another consideration and one of the tricky things about shift work of course is that people are up and awake during what I would refer to as, as the biological nighttime, the time when their bodies really want to sleep. And so they're not particularly well suited to being active at that time or to digesting and metabolizing food and so on. And so it makes sense when possible to try and keep your diet timing quite regular from one day to the next. And if possible, try and keep the timing of your nutrition at a time at which it feels like your subjective day, it feels like your biological daytime. So if you can if you can fix your eating window within a period of say six to 12 hours each day, so basically just limiting your intake of anything containing calories, so snacks and meals and so on, to a regular period of six to 12 hours each day, and then try and minimize snacks outside, outside of that window. And if you do snack, then keep the snacks small and preferably quite easy to digest. So I just go for something that's relatively high in protein and probably high in fiber. And I think for shift workers, just keeping some of those on themselves as opposed to relying on making good decisions in real time can be quite important because when people snack, they tend to snack mindlessly. But if you've got, say, some nuts on you or if you've got some sort of protein bar, say, handy, then that can help you make better choices rather than going to the vending machine and getting a bag of crisps and a chocolate bar. And then finally, I'll just say that shift schedules can, can be personalized, at least for some workers. Sometimes this isn't possible, but at one end of the spectrum, there are so-called early birds or morning larks who naturally like waking up early and going to bed early and for those people if they can get rid of night shifts then they're likely to sleep better and also experience improved well-being and then at the other end of the spectrum 
for a night owl or an evening type, if they can get rid of morning shifts, which for them would be most strenuous, then they'll also experience those benefits. Mm. So sometimes just having conversation with your boss and removing the most strenuous shift from your particular shift schedule can have a dramatic effect on how you feel and how you function each day. That's really interesting. I'm definitely a night owl. Uh, and this is actually sort of, I was going to ask you about how age affects it as well. As a teenager, I, I certainly had a bit of a rocky relationship with sleep. And a lot of it was driven by the fact that I had to be up early for school. And I absolutely did not want to get up early. Um, <laughs> and I would struggle as well when it came to the evenings to get to sleep, even if I actually listened to my parents for once and got into bed early. I'd just mm. end up lying there for quite a long time before anything happened. Um, so how does age affect sleep? And is there anything you can do if you've got, you know, something at school, which... Absolutely. Sure. And just to briefly pick up on something you mentioned there, you should only ever go to bed if you're actually sleepy. If you're not feeling sleepy, then you should never go to bed because you're just going to lie in bed wide awake. And over time, that can pose problems because what will happen is you'll learn to associate your bed with somewhere that you're awake. Mm. And ultimately that can perpetuate insomnia in the most severe cases. So with that said, how, how does age affect sleep? It affects many aspects of sleep. And these include the timing, the duration and the quality of sleep. So with respect to timing, I think most of us know that our sleep is latest around the end of adolescence. So in women, it's around 20 years of age, men slightly later. And interestingly, because it's slightly later in men, men's body clocks keep getting later for longer. So by the end of adolescence, men tend to be slightly later on average than women. And that persists until probably around 50 years of age. And that coincides with the end of menopause. And that kind of makes sense when you think about things in terms of mate preferences, because typically guys will be several years older than girls in a relationship. And so there might be some sort of matching in terms of chronotype, which is the construct that describes whether someone's a morning like or a night owl. And then with that said, by the age of say 60 or so, many people are even earlier types than when they were kids. Regarding sleep duration, that of course changes too. So newborns might sleep for up to 18 hours a day and they, they don't have very well consolidated body clocks. And because of that, their sleep doesn't fit neatly into a pattern, but that pattern emerges over time. And then by the time of adolescence, they should be getting probably eight to 10 hours of sleep per night. And then for, for people our age, Marcus, we should be getting maybe seven to nine hours per night. And then among elderly people, the recommendation might be slightly less than that. So perhaps seven to eight hours per night in people 65 years old or older. And then there's the quality of sleep too. So I touched on this concept of sleep stages earlier. As we fall asleep, we enter the lighter stage of sleep typically, and then we go through cycles of different stages of sleep, roughly every 90 minutes or so across the night. 
And early in the sleep period, our sleep is dominated by deeper sleep, which is also known as slow wave sleep, which is very important to things like immune function, the consolidation of certain types of memories, and also the restoration of various different bodily tissues. So things like connective tissue, because it's during this stage of sleep in which our bodies produce much of their growth hormone. And then there's also this other stage of sleep called rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep, which is the stage of sleep in which we have our most vivid and bizarre dreams, although we do actually dream in all stages of sleep. And as the night progresses and we go through these 90-minute cycles, REM sleep takes up more and more of this time. But with that said, newborns only seem to have two stages of sleep. So they only have so-called quiet sleep, which is non-REM sleep, and then active sleep, which is REM sleep. Whereas us adults have four stages. And then there are also additional changes in these stages over time, such that among elderly people, they often have substantially less deep sleep than they did when they were at their physical and mental peak. And interestingly, the degree to which they, they lose deep sleep and certain features of deeper stages of sleep seems to associate with things like loss of memory. And so many people are interested in whether it's possible to help elderly people get more deep sleep so that they can offset that deterioration over time. And then with respect to teens specifically, of course, one of the issues at play is school start times. So if, if kids' bodies' clocks are getting later and later during adolescence and they have to get up at six in the morning or five in the morning to be on time for the school bus, then that's going to pose all sorts of issues. And there have been lots of studies looking at this now. And there was one particularly interesting one a few years ago, and it basically used a a way of mathematically modeling what would happen if in the US states delayed school start times to 8.30 a.m. And as has been shown in many studies, they anticipated that the kids would perform better academically. They would also experience far fewer car crashes. And over time, there'll be huge savings economically too. So I think specifically, they estimated that delaying school start times would contribute more than $80 billion to the US economy within a decade. So most of us don't care about the latter, but the fact that kids are going to be safer and perform better academically should make a lot of ears perk up. And regarding what teens, what parents of teens can do to help teens get better sleep, I think there are a few things. So one would be actually suggesting later school start times to your local school board. And mm. a lot of people are more open to this now than they used to be. And this is being trialed in many parts of the world, probably most famously in, in places such as California. And so far, many of the areas in which this has been studied have showed things like improved grades at school. But in terms of other tips that are close to home, I think one would be Get your devices or get your teens' devices out of their bedrooms if possible. And I think smartphones can be particularly problematic. I don't think that they are necessarily problematic, but I, I tend to compare them to nutrition. And at one end, you have junk food, 
Likewise, there are junk ways of using your phone, just scrolling mindlessly through your social media feed. And then at the other end, there are really nourishing foods. And with respect to smartphones, maybe that's making a call to a, a loved one. So <clears throat> with that said, I think the issue with many teens is that they're spending more time on their phones now than they used to. It's clear that smartphone use has on average gone up since the COVID-19 pandemic kicked in. And if you're on your phone late at night, then that can interfere with your sleep in several ways. So one would be the content that you're exposed to. If there's lots of negativity, then that might weigh heavy on your mind. One would be the light exposure from the device. Truth be told, I don't think that the actual impact of that is nearly as severe as some people make it out to be. And that's particularly true if you spend plenty of time outdoors each day during daylight, because the more high intensity daylight that you get from being outside, the less any light at night that you're exposed to is likely to disrupt your sleep. Mm. And then there's also the fact that... I suppose the, people, the brightness of an iPhone can't really compete with the brightness of the sun. <laughs> No, no. And to, to put this into context, if you're outdoors on a sunny day at midday in the summer and there aren't really any clouds in the sky, then you'll be exposed to something like 100 to 150,000 lux. Lux is the unit of light intensity. One lux is the intensity of light that's emitted by one candle held one meter from you. So 150,000 lux outdoors in that environment. If you're in a relatively well-lit room indoors during the daytime, you might be exposed to 500 to 1,000 lux. So you can already see how dramatic the difference is between those two things. So if you're in a dark room and you're using your smartphone and it's on night shift mode anyway, then it's, it's really a drop in the ocean. It's nothing to be too concerned about. But I think perhaps more important than that is also the fact that when we use these devices, we often lose track of time. And, and this is very true of things like Netflix as well. So if you've got something on autoplay, mm. then it happens all too often that we end up watching two or three episodes when we plan to watch one. And then all of a sudden, we still need to be up at 6am the next day for work. And we've just lost one or two hours of sleep. So getting devices out of your teen bed, teen's bedrooms and ideally trying to get them to not use their smartphones within half an hour or so of when they're planning to go to bed and applying that rule to yourself too, of course. Among young people, this was recently shown to not only help them fall asleep faster, but also to improve their sleep quality, to prolong their sleep duration and because of those beneficial effects on sleep, they actually had better daytime cognitive performance too. So simple change like this could potentially improve their performance at school as well. And then otherwise, I would say that if you can expose your teens to plenty of light in the morning, then that can help shift their clocks earlier. And briefly, we have our body clocks and those influence the timing of pretty much every aspect of our biology. But the most prominent of these is the sleep-wake cycle. And when we're exposed to light is the most important stimulus 
in influencing the timing of our body's clocks, apart from our, our genetics and our age. And so with that said, if you expose yourself to lots of the kind of light that you get outdoors on a sunny day within a couple of hours of waking up in the morning, then that light will serve as an anchor, helping to anchor the time of your body clock early in the day. If, however, you expose yourself to lots of light late in the day, so maybe within two to four hours of when you typically go to sleep, then that will tend to anchor your clock later in the day. And for teens whose clocks are progressively delaying until they're fully grown, that can be really problematic. So if you go into your teen's bedroom early in the morning, opening the curtains and getting some light in the room can be handy. Alternatively, or perhaps in addition, if they wake to an alarm in the morning, then you could consider using a so-called sunrise alarm clock. I, I don't think the effect of those would be dramatic necessarily, but I don't see any downside to giving one a go. And it, it might have some small beneficial effect. What is a sunrise clock? I've heard of those. It's just an alarm clock. And shortly before it's due to go off, it starts emitting light of an increasing intensity. And that exposure to light can help naturally awake you at a, a slightly earlier time than you otherwise would awaken. It can also help reduce how groggy you feel when you wake up in the morning. So you can see how used day to day, that could potentially help to, to shift them a little bit earlier than they otherwise would be. Um, so we covered quite a lot of information there. There was a couple of things that I'd like to pull out. One of them was that you mentioned about trying to sort of rally your school to to consider starting a bit later. Um, do you know if there's anyone, any schools in the UK that have successfully done that? Or is it just US-based studies so far? Well, there have been studies in many countries around the world. I must admit that I haven't looked specifically for work done in the UK, and I haven't spent much time looking at this literature recently either. So my guess would be that there are instances of that being the case, but I don't know for certain. It'd be, it'd be interesting to find out because I think often it takes a you know a single domino for for others to follow. You know, so um, mm -hmm. you know being able to look back to the school that set the precedent could could help schools in the future to um, to do the same. But uh, we'll leave that with the with the parents to make that happen <laughs> um, and the head teachers of course um so something else that you talked about was the importance of not getting into bed if you don't feel tired yet um mm. ensuring that the room is nice and cool um and that it's dark it sounds like the thing that this particularly made me think of is all of those people that over the last 18 months or so have ended up working from home and some mm. of them will have been working in their bedrooms. Yeah. Do you think if they can, they should be moving that workspace into another room? Absolutely. That's so important. And that's if possible. But what we're getting at here is a concept that's known as stimulus control of behavior, which sounds fancy. All that it means is that because our brains are very good at creating associations between things, Certain stimuli over time lead us to engage in certain behaviors. Think, for instance, of when you're driving. If you're approaching a red light, then you will automatically start to brake, at least I hope. <laughs> and similarly, if 
you've learned to associate your bed with being somewhere that you're awake, as I mentioned earlier, because you spend lots of time in bed awake. So let's say that you occasionally lie on your bed, on your laptop, doing some work or watching a film or whatever. Then over time, that can lead to some sleep issues. And this isn't something that I want to make people neurotic about, but if you're struggling with your sleep, then this is absolutely critical. So related to that, I would say, save your bed for sex and sleep only. When it comes to lockdown specifically, designate spaces within your home environment for certain activities. Again, this isn't something to be militant about, but I think a lot of people when lockdowns kicked in, struggled to be physically active. And part of the reason for that is that they weren't used to exercising at home. Whereas if they were used to going to the gym to exercise, let's say, then most people don't really use the gym for anything but exercise. So you turn up at the gym and if you get yourself through the door, it's usually quite easy to at least do something. At home though, if you're used to relaxing in a certain area and now you're trying to use it for exercise, then it becomes difficult. So if you can... Be particular about how you use particular parts of your home. So that area over there is your working space. That area over there is your relaxing space. That bed is for sleep and sex and nothing else. Then that can meaningfully improve your lifestyle behaviors over time. And then I I think the other things to mention that relate to this are if you're lying in bed in the middle of the night, you've just woken up to go to the toilet, let's say, and you don't fall asleep within 15 to 20 minutes, you should get out of bed and do something relaxing in dim lighting in a different room, if possible. And then you should only return to bed when you're sleepy. Again, you're trying to strengthen the association between your bed and sleep. And examples of good activities to do during that time would be things like reading a book, you could meditate if you're that way inclined. You could listen to relaxing music. You could watch TV, but one thing I'll say is that whatever you do at this time should be not too stimulating. It should be fine and pleasant, but it should also be somewhat dull because if it's too stimulating, then you'll just stay up because you want more of it. Mm. So I think that that's really important to, to people right now. And it's definitely one of the sleep-related tips that I think is, has come into its own in recent times. Sure. Moving on then, let's, let's kind of, because obviously there's so much information there and hopefully people will be able to kind of pick out the little bits that are relevant to, there as we went, relevant to them as, as we went along. But if you were going to give three key, really kind of concise top tips um, that most people would benefit from, from hearing what would you say they'd be? In addition to what I've said so far, I would say give yourself one to two hours to wind down. And you can think of preparing for sleep as being a bit like driving on a motorway. If you're, if you're busy during the day, so that's equivalent to driving fast, then your mind will be in overdrive and maybe you're moving around a lot physically too. You need to start to decelerate. And if you, if you try to turn off the motorway while you're driving 70 miles an hour and there was a sharpish turn, then things might not end that well. Similarly, if, if you've been busy all day and then you just go straight to sleep and you're not particularly sleepy, then you're just going to lie in bed wide awake. So during this time, dim the lights, 
good activities include having a hot shower or hot bath about one to two hours before bed. That will help you fall asleep faster and sleep more efficiently. And then I mentioned reading a book, listening to music. Those are good options too. So that would definitely be one of them. Another would probably be to try and offload stress during the day. And there are different ways of doing this, of course. There are things like making to-do lists. If you have lots on your mind late in the day, everything you need to get done, then just making a to-do list using a pen and paper will get those thoughts out of your mind and stop yourself ruminating over them as you go to bed. Another really helpful strategy is scheduling worry time, which sounds strange, but the idea is just that if you're busy during the day, that will stop you from having time to worry about things. And then as you start to take your foot off the accelerator late in the day, many of those worries come to the surface. If you schedule 15 minutes of worry time, maybe put it on the end of your dinner in which you just sit down with a pen and piece of paper and and you list whatever you're concerned about and anything you can do to help address it. And then you commit to only worrying about things during your worry time, the same time the next day, then that can dramatically improve sleep. And then finally, this is an obvious one. And I think most people listening to this are probably already doing this, but being physically active outdoors in daylight for at least half an hour each day at, at the very lowest end is good for all aspects of your health, but it is very important for sleep too. How many calories you burn each day and various other aspects of exercise do meaningfully affect sleep. And that's why kid, that's why parents of kids will, will try and wear them out during the day because they know that at night they're just going to get knocked out. That's really, really helpful. I actually really like the second tip because uh, I've not really heard of the concept of creating, uh, you know, allotted worry time before. And I, I actually feel like that's beyond just sleep. That's just a really good general mental health tip. Um, that sounds really valuable. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, it is really handy. And and I think it's probably more relevant now than ever. Um, Let's move on to nutrition specifically. Oh, actually, no, I have one more thing. I'm sorry. One more (laughs) thing on sleep that I wanted wanted to cover. I have a friend who's experienced sleep paralysis before. Um, He's explained it to me before, but I'd I'd like to hear it from you. If you can explain what it is um, and I wouldn't be remotely surprised to find out that it's relatively well linked to stress and anxiety and things like that. Is that true? So what it is, is some aspects of sleep persisting into wakefulness. And people often think of sleep as being some sort of monolithic state in which the whole brain and body are asleep all at once. In reality, there can be some parts of the body and brain that have wake-like behavior and other parts that are fast asleep. So if you're sleepy, then during the day, you might have micro sleeps. And likewise, if you're asleep, then sometimes some parts of the body start to wake up. And what happens in sleep paralysis is that during rapid eye movement sleep, your skeletal muscles, so everything apart from your heart and your diaphragm and so on, become paralyzed, which is presumably so that you don't act out your dreams. And in sleep paralysis, this paralysis continues into wakefulness. So you've got that residue of sleep. And as a result, 
you typically can't speak and you won't be able to move your arms and your legs or your body and your head. And sometimes people will also hallucinate during these episodes. And, and again, that's probably because some dreamlike brain activity persists into wakefulness. And these can be quite scary. So quite often people experiencing these episodes will think that there's another person in the room with them. But sometimes it happens when people are falling asleep. And sometimes it can happen when people are waking up from sleep. And typically it happens more in people whose sleep schedules are quite irregular. So it's more common in shift workers, for instance. And it's also more prevalent among people who just don't get enough sleep. So for that reason, students often experience this. I know that I had an episode or two while I was doing my undergrad. And it's quite common and, and it's probably harmless. You know, it might affect up to a third of people at some point, possibly slightly less than that. And the only instance in which I think it could be problematic is that occasionally this actually goes with a bunch of other issues. And it turns out that a person has narcolepsy, which a lot of people will have heard of. It's a sleep disorder in which people periodically collapse into sleep because parts of the brain is very important to sleep weight regulation doesn't work as well as it should do. And, and that can be really debilitating. But again, that's, that's very, very rare. So in terms of what your friend can do to cope with it, there are a few things. One would be if you become aware that you're going into sleep paralysis, then sometimes just doing what you can to wiggle a toe or a finger is enough to break its hold. Another would be if you're sleeping with a bed partner, then you might find that you can make a very quiet noise during sleep paralysis. And then over time, your bed partner can learn to identify when you're having one of these bouts. And then finally, another tip would be when you're awake in the morning, don't go back to sleep because if you do, then you're, you're more likely to have a sleep paralysis. I uh, I now feel like if I ever experience this, the first thing that will enter my head is that I need to reenact the scene in Kill Bill where she's <laughs> staring at her toe and going, wiggle your big toe. <laughs> wiggle your big toe. <laughs> uh, but the other tips are good too. The other tips are good too. <laughs> okay, so let's finally move on to nutrition then. Um, I think to start off with, we mentioned that you um, co-founded Resilient Nutrition. Could you tell us a little bit about who, well, who you are as Resilient Nutrition and what, what your goal is, what you're trying to do? Absolutely. So fundamentally, what we're trying to do is make feeling and performing better, convenient, simple, and delicious as delicious as possible. But really... That comprises a few different things for us. So one is the products that we make. One is educating people about how to live healthier lifestyles and recognizing that nutrition is just one piece of the puzzle. But certainly nowadays, I think people struggle because there's so much conflicting information about what's healthy and what's not. It feels like one day coffee is good for you or red wine is good for you and the next day it's not. And then along the way, we're, we're trying to do some good too. So we're, we're very mindful of the environment and we, we try and think about things through a long-term lens. But our first product is basically a series of 
turbo nut butters, which we first made for ultra endurance athletes. So specifically, Ali, who's the CEO, and I helped a couple of guys get ready to row the Atlantic in 2019. And we made prototypes of a product for them. And that became this first product, Long Range Fuel, which is high protein nut butter that contains no rubbish. It's delicious. It's really nutrient dense. And it comes in different versions that are suited to different times of day. So one version called Energize is great if you need to pick me up. And another version named Calm is ideal later in the day. It supports healthy sleep, but also can help with how you respond to exercise. So that's long range fuel. I'm going to fire a few things off the top of my head that just be, to your point about there being a lot of conflicting information out there, mm. this probably won't help to clear up that conflicting information. So <laughs> but nonetheless, I'm going to throw out some things that I've heard that I think might be right, are probably mm. right, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. And if you could just say <laughs> yes, no, sort of, to each one, that would be great. So sure. gonna, number one, fats, don't really have to worry about them. <laughs> Sort of. Sugar, bad. <sighs> sort of. <laughs> I, can add, I can add a tiny bit of context to each of them. If I, you like. I'm sensing a theme so, here. <laughs> yeah. So, so in the case of fats, I think there are certain fats that are categorically bad. And something like margarine would perfectly exemplify that. If your fat is coming from foods that are naturally high in fat, so think fatty fish, nuts, even fatty cuts of meat, but not heavily processed meat. So just think of at the extreme, something like pork belly. I think including those foods from time to time in moderate quantities is absolutely fine. And then with respect to sugar, if the sugar is naturally present in a whole food, so think of anything from a sweet potato to a mango, then you shouldn't think twice about it. And I think all the evidence points in that direction. If, however, we're talking about sugar that has been separated from food and is then used to sweeten products and make them more delicious and thereby increase your propensity to eat too much of the food, then that's an entirely different story. And it's clear that consuming excess quantities of free sugar like that, and when I say sugar, I'm also referring to things like high fructose corn syrup in the US. I'm referring to things like honey too, because chemically it's really very similar to sugar. Excessive quantities of any of those things can be problematic, especially for people who have poor metabolic health. That's actually a really interesting one because I have kind of been seeing honey as like this, oh, this amazing natural version Mm. of refined sugar and it's like i can sweeten anything and it tastes amazing on everything i put it on yeah it sounds like maybe i shouldn't be thinking that way (laughs) (laughs) so to be clear it depends on the honey as well not all honey is created equal needless to say and some honey does contain quite a lot of bioactive health promoting so-called polyphenols or plant chemicals However, other types of honey, so think of some of the cheap honey that you buy in supermarket, that really is pretty much just sugar. So just bear that context in mind. Okay. Um, next comparison then, or next, next uh, statement, I suppose. Um, 
processed foods bad local and organic foods good i would say yes to the latter part of the statement and i would say sort of to the first and the reason that it's sort of is that there are instances in which you can process a food that results in something which is actually enormously health promoting and i wrote a free ebook named the principles of resilient nutrition that people can download at resilientnutrition.com shameless plug and i, I touch on some of these concepts in that ebook hmm. but the example that i use in it is a, a class of chemicals in cocoa named flavanols and these include catechin and epicatechin and some others and cocoa is i think the most concentrated source of these flavanols of any food identified so far and so you can create a cocoa extract that is extremely rich in these and they have various health promoting properties for example they're very good for the function of your blood vessels and for that reason they can improve blood flow to pretty much all aspects of your body which is relevant to everything from sexual performance to your brain function and there are studies showing that if people regularly consume these cocoa flavanols then things like working memory and attention and the ability to switch between tasks all improve and to to get that from whole unprocessed cocoa beans you'd have to eat heroic quantities which just wouldn't be feasible so there are instances in which processing foods can create compounds that are enormously beneficial in many instances drug like but for the most part food processing results in something that's very moreish that causes you to overeat that's often quite nutrient poor because mm. during the processing it's sometimes the case that foods are stripped of much of their micronutrition so think of wheat flour say and for that reason for the most part food processing is is less than ideal i'm just saying that it does have its place and when people categorically say that it's bad i think they're misguided interesting so uh with all of my misguidings out of the way <laughs> Um, what would you say are the basic principles of healthy eating, the sort of pillars by which we should all be trying to, to live? So I'd say there are a few. And again, I, I realise that's also still a difficult question because it's so individualistic, but sure, speaking very generally. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try and keep this relatively brief. But as I'm sure you've already worked out, I'm, I'm very long-winded, so I apologise for that. But I'd say <laughs> one of the principles would be it's, it's probably okay to eat foods that have been around for hundreds of thousands of years. And into that category go things like vegetables, fungi, fruits, meat. And when I say meat, I, I'm again referring to meat that hasn't been processed in any way. Eggs, fish, nuts, seeds, herbs, and spices. I'm not referring to grains or pulses. And I'm not saying that those are necessarily detrimental i'm just saying that the the list that i just rattled off are, are very unlikely to pose most people problems 
another tip would be, I think, of course, what you eat matters. And we're, we're omnivores. <laughs> you might have seen in some online circles discussions about things like carnivore diets and vegan diets. And the reality is that because we're omnivores, we can thrive on a wide range of diets, everything from vegan diets to keto diets that are very rich in animal foods. But with that said, people do thrive on different diets. And as an example of this, take dairy. For someone who's lactose intolerant, dairy could leave them in a world of gastrointestinal hurt. But for somebody who digests dairy well, dairy is probably quite good for their body composition, so for their muscle mass and their fat mass and so on. And a simple way to think about this is, is considering where your ancestors are from. If you're from somewhere at a high latitude, so let's say you're from Northern Europe, then your ancestors would have probably had a relatively mixed diet that was rich in animal foods, but also contained some plants. If, however, your ancestors are from somewhere near the equator, then plants grow much better at the equator. Like there are reasons that there aren't rainforests in Alaska. And based on that, those people would have thrived on fruits and vegetables. They might not consume so much meat and fish and so on. And for that reason, it's likely that you're going to do really well on that type of plant-rich diet too. That's somewhat speculative, but it's, it's completely intuitive. And I, I believe that it's quite hard to argue with. And then I'd say one important tip would be to, to match the, the energy or the calorie density of the foods that you consume to your goals. So if you're trying to gain weight, then you want to consume lots of foods that are very rich in calories. So think nuts and extra virgin olive oil, fattier cuts of meat. This is a time when consuming things like honey with foods can be helpful. But if you're trying to lose weight, then it would make more sense to pick less calorie dense foods. So choosing leaner cuts of meat, for example, lots of non-starchy vegetables, mm. berries, that type of thing. I would say your protein intake is really important, not only for your muscle mass and your bone health, also for your immune function. And I think a lot of people don't consume enough protein. And when they simply increase their protein intake, particularly at certain meals, and most people in countries like the UK have the majority of their protein intake at dinner. If they spread out their protein intake more evenly and they have a protein-rich breakfast, then body composition often improves, their appetite goes down, and it sets them up well for the rest of the day. Then I would say variety is key. Look, the more restrictive your diet is, the more likely you are to not get enough of certain nutrients. So take the example of a vegan and... Vegans need to be particularly vigilant about their intake of micronutrients such as vitamin B12 and iron and also some macronutrients are certain fatty acids, the, the types of so-called omega-3 fatty acids that you get in fish. Vegans often don't get enough of those. And based on what I just said, the guidance to eat the rainbow does make sense. And I'm not talking about the rainbow of Skittles. I'm talking about the <laughs> rainbow of fruits and vegetables. And then also eating nose to tail. And that puts some people off in countries like England because a lot of us are used to eating skinless chicken breasts 
and pork chops mm. and not much else. And the reality is that that's hugely wasteful because we end up throwing away lots of things like kidney and liver and heart and so on. But also you're doing yourself a disservice in that those organ meats or offal that I just mentioned are enormously rich in certain nutrients. And I'd argue that liver is, is certainly one of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet. So eating nose to tail and just periodically including small amounts of those foods can be really important or can strongly positively affect your health. And then with respect to what you drink, I think just drinking to thirst works fine for many people, but there are some instances in which drinking slightly more and making a conscious effort to do so can be helpful. I'm thinking of someone like my old man. He was recently diagnosed with gout. And for him, improving his hydration can meaningfully affect things like the flares that he experiences from time to time. So that's what to eat. But then there are other aspects of eating that are key too. So one would be when you eat. And people will have heard of concepts such as time-restricted eating or time-restricted feeding that have gained a lot of popularity in recent times. And this whole subject falls under what's now known as chrononutrition. The idea that it's possible to take an understanding of your body's clock to improve how your body responds to what you eat and drink by consuming certain things at certain times of day. And to leverage this science, I'd give a few tips. And one would be probably wait at least 30 minutes after your natural wake time. So that's the time that you'd wake without an alarm clock before consuming anything that's not water. At the other end of the day, I think not going to bed either hungry or full is important. And I think it makes sense to stop consuming calories at least two hours before bedtime. For some people, having an even earlier dinner can be really helpful. And part of the reason for this is just that we tend to consume certain things at certain times of day. Not many people have wine at breakfast and not many people have porridge at dinner. And the reality is that many of us eat less healthy items late in the day, often while sat in front of the TV. Then I would say keep your diet timing as regular as possible from day to day. If you control for the actual foods that people consume and the average number of meals they consume each day, but you change their diet timing from day to day, then various aspects of their metabolism and also their appetite tend to deteriorate. So they tend to be more hungry, their blood sugar control is worse and so on. So just keeping your diet regular can be really handy. And then otherwise I would say for most people eating breakfast like a king and dinner like a pauper is actually a good strategy. And there have been several studies done, particularly in the last 10 years or so, showing that if you take people with poor metabolic health, so maybe someone is obese or somebody has type 2 diabetes, and you front load their calorie and their carbon fat intakes in particular, then they fare much better than if their carbs and fats are distributed more evenly throughout the day. And just as one example of this, there was a study done in 2013 that divided overweight and obese women into two groups. And in one group, they had 50% of their calories for the day at breakfast. So that's a big breakfast group. And in the other group, they had 50% at dinner, but otherwise the diets were the same. 
same calories, same carbs, same fat, same protein. And after 12 weeks, the big breakfast group lost more than twice as much weight, more than twice as many inches off their waist and had bigger improvements in their blood sugar regulation and their blood lipids too. So just changing how you distribute your energy each day can have quite a dramatic effect on health, at least if your health is quite poor to start with. And then another tip for people who have, say, poor blood sugar control, which is really important to many aspects of health in the long term, but this is most relevant to people who either have diabetes or pre-diabetes. I'd say save really carbohydrate-rich items, so think bread, pasta, rice, that type of thing, for, for later in meals if possible. So practically a simple way around this is start meals with a big salad. And the reason I say that is that when people do this, they can reduce their, their blood sugar swings in response to meals by something like 40 to 70% if they have poor blood sugar control which is a really big difference. And when you add that up over time, it could quite meaningfully affect their risk of long-term health complications. So that's when you eat. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you want to, to jump in here, Marcus. The, the other things that were on my mind were just how you eat is also important. And then there are also some simple things people can do to, to make healthy eating a bit easier. Well, so one, one thing I was going to ask before we move on to the, to the how was... If you want to eat your breakfast like a king, which sounds brilliant to me, by the way, <laughs> um, what would you be recommending people eat at that point? Because breakfast is something that I've struggled before to go, mm -hmm. well, what am I actually going to want to eat that's going to be good for me? It's very tempting just to go for a nice, you know, a nice cereal or like some granola or something. Is there better options out there than, you know, some high protein, high fiber granola? Yeah, I, I think there often are better options and I don't want to throw all granola under the bus because there is some okay stuff out there. <laughs> but going back to the heuristic of consuming minimally processed foods, good options include things, of course, like boiled eggs and nuts. And you could, of course, take the eggs and, and make an omelette if you're that way inclined. Fruit is is a really good addition to breakfast. So th the way that I typically, and I'm, I'm not recommending this as a, a way for everyone by any means, but I might start my day with, with a few boiled eggs or an omelette, have some nuts and, and then have some fruit at the end as a, as a kind of pudding. But with that said, I think if you're on a, if you're consuming more carbohydrate, then of the different grains that are out there, I think good whole steel cut rolled oats are a really good option. There are quite big differences between different types of oats in terms of how they affect things like blood sugar. So at, at one end of the spectrum, you have something like ready break, which is almost hard to identify as oats when you put it alongside the types of oats that I just described. But if, if you get good jumbo oats, then I, I think those, those are perfectly fine and, and you can have those with whatever milk you would like to choose and you can throw in nuts you can throw in spices like cinnamon if you like you can throw in a small amount of honey i think that's absolutely fine and of course related to all of this if your health is pretty good and you're very active you don't need to worry so much about some of the details that i just mentioned and your carbohydrate intake can 
can quite strongly influence your performance and things like endurance activities and strength and power training too. And, and that's why the endurance athletes of the world used to have their pasta parties before key races. So if, if you're on a high carb diet to support your sports performance, I, I think things like cereals are perfectly good options for many people. But I'd, I'd gravitate to, to those oats that I just mentioned. Brilliant. Um, I'm going to let you fire away now. You wanted to get into the how. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So what I was getting at is if we take the example of eating in front of the TV, we typically become absorbed in whatever we're watching or looking at our Instagram feeds and we're not concentrating on the food. So going back to the idea that we can designate certain spaces for certain things, a simple tip that's really helpful for a lot of people is eat meals at the dinner table and ideally eat those meals with other people because that can make life better. And if you eat with people who eat well, then they're likely to rub off on you. And then finally, I'd say there are a few quite simple strategies to make making better diet choices easier. And one of these would be to make foods and drinks that you want to consume more of more visible and make the ones you want to consume less of less, less visible. So taking the former, that might mean keeping a fruit bowl full of fresh fruit on the kitchen counter or in the living room on the table. Whereas if you've got a disposition to consume too many biscuits, then either getting those out of the house entirely or getting them out of sight, so putting them in a cupboard can definitely help you consume less of those things. There was a researcher, Brian Wansink, who wrote several widely discussed books about this subject. And his work was panned not long ago because it turned out that he'd committed academic fraud. But some of his findings have been recapitulated and just someone's proximity to unhealthy items will definitely influence whether they're going to consume and how much of those they will consume too. And then otherwise, I would say try and be specific when you're making changes to your nutrition. So let's say that you're planning to add some protein to your breakfast. Well, in that case, think about what you're going to do. So you're adding protein. Where are you going to do it? Well, I'm going to do that in the kitchen. But if I'm out and about, then I'm going to have a high protein snack candy. And then also you might think about things like how often you're going to do it and, and with whom you'll do it too. And then finally, I'd say track certain habits. But if you gained a few pounds during the pandemic and you're trying to shed a bit of weight, then just tracking your body weight two or three days a week, under standardized conditions. So that'd be first thing in the morning after going to the toilet before eating or drinking anything can be really helpful. And in this example, you track a relevant outcome. So here it's body weight and then a relevant behavior too. And let's say that that's, well, I'm not going to consume any calories after 7 p.m. because I go to bed at 10 p.m. and that's three hours before my bedtime. And then you might just simply either have a piece of paper with a table on it 
or you might have something like an Excel spreadsheet in which you just jot from one day to the next whether you completed the habit in question, or you might jot the body weight in kilograms or pounds. And then you can see how you're behaving over time. And what you'll tend to find is that if you build up a streak of successful days, then you don't want to break the chain. And all of a sudden you've got some momentum. And as you start to stack small habits like that together, over time they can have a dramatic effect on on your health and your performance. I'm going to bring in one final topic of conversation before we move on to your three recommendations. Um, a friend of mine has run a couple of ultra marathons now. He's hmm. uh, he he smashed them. I'll say that first. However, they also smashed him. Um, <laughs> he he it completely broke him physically. It almost broke him mentally, but not quite. Um, he had two specific questions for you, um, yeah. but I wonder whether you could give some some kind of general information as well as to how you know your diet might change if you're looking at taking on serious endurance um, challenges. Um, but his two specific questions were: one, some ways to check fuel intake during events, um, and two, how to gauge intake for recovery. Ways to check fuel intake during events. Can you just clarify what you mean by that? Sorry. I think, I don't know whether it's actually the most appropriate question for you because I think what he means is how do you monitor what your intake, how do you best monitor what your intake is or should be whilst you're actually taking part in the event? Um, Whether that's a question for you or whether that's a question for, I don't know, someone that makes some kind of food measuring device uh app for a fitness watch or something i don't know but um i'll let you react (laughs) sure yeah so i think if if the event is self-supported then it it might be more straightforward self-supported events are events in which people carry all of their nutrition with them and in these types of events people will hopefully have a nutrition strategy which is something they've developed during their training I think one of the most important tips for any ultra endurance athlete is to practice nutrition and training for weeks before the event. I think at minimum practicing nutrition and training three times a week for two weeks can do the job. The reality is that a lot of ultra athletes will have one long session a week, especially if they're working regular jobs. Typically that will be a weekend day in which they go out for say a long run. And during those runs, the goal is to identify what works for you, but also to train yourself to be able to take on board more energy per unit of time. And it's been shown that this can be really helpful for athletes, specifically with respect to carbohydrate intake. So there are various studies showing that people can increase the amount of carbohydrate they can successfully take in without any negative consequences from less than 60 grams per hour to up to 90 grams per hour if they do so in a systematic way in which they're slowly increasing their intake over time and during these sessions the goal should be to get to a point at which you're consuming something like 20 percent more calories per hour than what you'll be taking on during the event itself so your training should go beyond what your race target is, if that makes sense. Now, with that said, if you've gone about that the correct way, then you have a strategy in place 
And the way that a lot of the items that these people consume are packaged makes it quite straightforward to monitor what you're consuming. So let's say you're using energy gels. If that's the case, then you'll probably use three energy gels per hour, let's say. And if you're keeping your eye on your Garmin, then you'll probably know roughly when you should be consuming each of those. And the same goes for something like long-range fuel, our product too. Each pouch is 100 grams, and those 100-gram pouches contain anywhere between about 500 calories and about 650 calories, which is great if you're doing a self-supported race because you're trying to minimize the mass of food you're carrying. And if your goal is to consume, say, 500 calories per hour, then you know that if you're just dipping into the long-range fuel now and then and getting through one of them per hour, then that's probably about the right rate for you. So sorry that doesn't directly answer his question that well, but hopefully it's somewhat helpful. And then with respect to recovery... I think it does though, because it it breaks down, it essentially is the basics of a strategy, isn't it? It breaks down what your, how you should be managing your intake, get the stuff that makes it easy to manage it rather than, you know, buying like random foods and cobbling something together, Um, you know, get, buy the right tools, I guess. (laughs) Exactly. And it's again just to sound like a broken record, it's practicing because that way mm. come race day, there won't be any surprises. You're not trying anything new. You've already trialed all of your nutrition items in training while running. And you have a strategy which you're going to stick to, but you're also going to be somewhat flexible because there are always spanners thrown in the works. And then with respect to the other question about recovery, I think as a general guideline, as soon as the person has finished racing for the day, consuming about 0.4 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So if someone was 60 kilos, then that would be 24 grams of protein combined with about 1.2 grams of carbohydrate per kilo of body weight. So again, 60 kilos, that'd be 72 grams of carbohydrate. And you can work that out in advance is helpful. That's going to help replenish your muscle carbohydrate stores. It's going to help to reverse the breakdown of your muscle tissue, which has been taking place during the run. And then for the hours that follow, you can probably keep taking on board carbohydrate at roughly that rate. And then in the final meal of the day, if you're doing a a multi-day race, you might want to include quite an energy-rich meal. So include plenty of fat in that meal too, and then get your head down for a kip and and hopefully you turn up the next day feeling good. The, The other side of this, just to throw it in there is hydration. And I think the basics of hydration in this type of event are that you should monitor your thirst, of course. And again, drinking to thirst generally works quite well. There are some instances in which it doesn't, but it generally does. And in ultra running, I think hydration is less of an issue because the pace is slower than it is during something like marathon running. So monitor your thirst, monitor the color of your urine each morning. The reason I say each morning is that during the sleep period, the different fluid fluid compartments in your body can equilibrate. And for that reason, the color of your first urine pass of the day tends to be strongly reflective of your, your total hydration straight status. And your urine should be apple juice colored or lighter as a rule of thumb. And then finally, I think if possible, you should, you should probably check your body weight. And from day to day, if somebody's losing more than about one kilo, I think that that can be a bit of a red flag. 
So you don't want to just pump yourself full of water at the end of the day to make sure that you don't exceed that one kilo threshold. But if you're staying adequately hydrated and you're losing more than a kilo per day, then I think that that can point you in the direction of a simple strategy through which to improve your performance, namely learning to eat more food and and related to that, there, there are lots of things that you can do to take on board calories more effectively during the race, but I'll leave it there. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that because there was so much really useful information. Um, I'm going to have to comb over the episode a couple of times uh, to really make sure I absorb it all, I think. Um, but it's all it's really, really good, helpful stuff. Um, let's get to your three recommendations. So we're looking for one film or TV show, one music, so that could be artist or song or even a playlist, uh, even a genre, and one other, which could be anything. That could be a podcast, an app, a book, an activity, whatever you'd like it to be. Far away. I think given this is the Osprey podcast, I might go with anything by Bruce Parry. I think a lot of listeners would be familiar with him. It's so authentic he explores really interesting cultures with such an open mind. He's an incredibly hard person. He's also very humble. And I think that combination is rare nowadays. It probably always has been rare. I, I quite often listen to various different circle sets, C-R-C-L-E. It's a French company, I think. And basically they, they get some of the world's best DJs. They take them to these amazing places the, the pyramids, the top of the Alps, and they just have them play sets there, sometimes with a group of people, although that's less common nowadays, but sometimes just by themselves. So one of them recently was Elkie Klein playing on top of Mont Saint-Michel in France oh, cool. at sunset, which is pretty cool. <laughs> I was sure you were going to say some kind of uh, sleep playlist on Spotify or something. Oh, no, no, no. no. Or spa music. <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely not. And then... <laughs> app or other so i mentioned it earlier but again shameless plug i think people will find that ebook the principles of resilient nutrition helpful mm. and they can check that out on our website and download it for free but otherwise i came across a website recently called giving multiplier which is basically a website that you can go to if you're going to make a charitable donation and you can choose to donate a certain proportion of the money you were going to donate so let's say you're going to donate 100 pounds to a charity of their choice and they have a list of the most effective charities in terms of how much good however much money you're contributing does so those include charities such as the against malaria foundation which disseminates bed nets to people in areas that are ridden with malaria and thereby help save a lot of lives and what giving multiplier does is it then contributes additional money on top of whatever you donate to the effective charity. So it's a simple way that you can end up doing more good for your buck than you otherwise would have done. Nice. That is a really solid, perhaps one of our best other recommends. I think I would put it up there. Certainly one of our most memorable was Jay Morton suggesting you get in a bin full of cold water. So I'm going to put it up there at least as high as that if there is a scoreboard. And there we go. I imagine it might take more than one listen to really take in the sheer quantity of information that was packed into that episode. 
do leave us a review. Let us know what you'd like to hear and from who you might want to hear in the future. I've been your host, Marcus Brown, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Osprey Podcast. Podcast.